Let's turn to the passage you read, Philippians 1, page 1178. I want to read again from verse 9 to verse 11. Paul is writing this letter when he himself is in jail in Rome, and he is writing to church in Philippi. <coughs> and this is what he says, verse, Philippians 1, verse 9, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to, to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Help us to understand it and to apply it. We so easily pass by things. We so easily forget. We are so easily hearers, but not doers of your word. As you speak to us through the scriptures, may each of us take it and apply it to ourselves. May your Holy Spirit take it and apply it to ourselves. And may we be encouraged and strengthened and provoked and challenged. That those of us who as yet do not know you would be drawn to you. That those who do would be drawn closer and that all of us would be delivered from the sins of pride and arrogance and despair, and that we would have our eyes lifted to see the beauty and the glory and the worthiness and the love of Jesus Christ, for we ask it in your name. Amen. I think if every single one of you were asked the question, do you want a better life, we would all agree it seems a bit like a daft question. The question changes somewhat if you say, does God want me to have a better life? And I think that's what our passage is about, the few verses that we've read. I think that's what that is about for us today. We are, God's Word not only informs us, it changes us. It is God at work in us, so we do not block our ears and we do not quench the Spirit. There is no greater power than the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God. I read a, an illustration of, by a man called Richard Halverson where he talks about how if you crush marbles, what do you get? You get fragmentation, disintegration, and sharp, hard pieces. You crush grapes and you get fragrant, refreshing wine. And he points out that some people are like marbles. They protect themselves. They want low risk. They relate by bumping around and in brittle lovelessness, they shatter when crushed and they hurt others. Some people, however, are like grapes. They yield to pressure. They give love knowing that to do so makes them vulnerable. And when crushed, they bring fragrant, redemptive blessing. I really like that picture. Too many of us, changing the analogy a little bit, are like hedgehogs. We are easily provoked. We easily put our spikes up. We are easily wounded. We are easily hurt. And when we are hurt, rather than being like a grape, which gives us this, what Halverson calls this fragrant, redemptive blessing, we, <coughs> we become bitter and sour. Now, the Philippians were crushed, but they were not sour. 
There was love shown in their relationships, and Paul thanks them for that because of their partnership in the gospel and the love that they had for one another and for him. There was a deep sense of commitment to one another. And their prayer, Paul's prayer here, is simply that that should develop and grow and that they should be the best, the best that we can be. If you go to a certain football ground in the west coast of Scotland, every time the team come out, you'll hear Tina Turner's simply the best, which they're not. But um, they, nonetheless, you kind of admire their hubris. But that's what God wants us to be, the best that we can be. And that's what this prayer is about. This prayer is about our growth spiritually, that we should not be satisfied being where we are. We should not be seeking to go back to where we once were, but we should be seeking to be the best that we can be for Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of this chapter says that God's begun a good work. If you are a Christian, God has begun a good work in you. If you are not a Christian, I pray that God would begin a good work in you. But he says that once he's begun that work, he will carry it on and bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Christian life is not one of you've arrived and that's it. The Christian life is one of growth and development and renewal. Paul believes, and inspired by the Spirit, he says it's God's work, it, it's God that finishes it. I think that there is a process of growth that occurs. Beginning with a seed, it comes on to a full harvest. Jesus talks about those who hear the word and some produce fruit 30, 60, 100 times. And that's the process that we're going to look at this evening. We're just going to work through what is this process of growth in the life of the Christian. You should be looking for that. If you're a Christian, you should be seeking to grow and develop in the love of Jesus Christ. We uh, had a, a birthday celebration last night, and it, and it was great. It was really tremendous, and I think there are some people who are kind of scared of getting older. They think, uh, I quoted The Who this morning, and The Who is not the World Health Organization, as one or two people thought the acronym was. They are actually a band, um, but uh, they had a song, Hope I Die Before I Get Old, because in the 1960s, to be old, and that meant over 40, was really that was just the ultimate in degradation. And yet, to grow old in the Lord is just a fantastic thing because you will grow and grow and grow and develop in Christ. And there is nothing more beautiful and nothing more wonderful than an older person who has grown and developed as a, a Christian brother and sister. And I say this to Younger people, find people like that and learn from them and listen to them and observe and watch them. They are not perfect, but they are an awful lot more mature spiritually than you can possibly be at this stage of your life. So we're going to look at that process and we begin uh, with verse 9. <coughs> The quality love that we're talking about that helps us grow your love, it abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. 
Now, here's the problem in Philippi, and it's a problem that happens in every church and in every fellowship. And it's that niggles begin to creep in. Problems begin to come in. What uh, the Song of Solomon describes as the little foxes that spoil things began to, to come in and to disrupt the fellowship. You, could, you find that. You find sometimes you can be at a church or you could be at a service and things have gone really, really well and you've really worshipped Jesus and you've really understood something of who he is and what the gospel is. And then someone says something or something happens or someone doesn't do something. And you know what? The devil takes that even though when you back off and you look at it, it's relatively trivial. That's what plays on your mind. In Philippi, there were problems, as you read through the letter, you will see that there were problems that were developing in the fellowship, particularly between two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and <coughs> that it was beginning to affect the whole church. And so Paul begins this by saying that growth in love is essential if you are to respond in a Christ-like way to new and potentially difficult situations and people. In fact, it's there that Christian love is really tested because Christian love is really needed the most when you've got new, difficult situations and difficult people. We're quite arrogant sometimes, and sometimes someone will come into the church and they're a bit of a pain, and we see them as a bit of a pain, and we don't know how to react, and we don't know how to respond, and we kind of wish that although we think they should be there, we kind of wish that they weren't and that there wouldn't be so much hassle and so much trouble. Well, the answer to that is, first of all, to go and look in the mirror because um, we were more than a bit of a pain and probably still are. If we find ourselves with really difficult situations and really difficult people, it's there that you see Christian love most exemplified. Christian love is not the kind of love that you have for people who are really attractive, who you really like, and who have got the sense to really like you. Christian love is for people who you find quite awkward, and who you struggle with, and who you don't get on with, who you wouldn't have round to the house for a meal, who you'd prefer not to speak to, who really irritate and annoy you. It's in the church that you have to show love to such people. Now, I think in this verse, it's not clear when it says your love may abound more and more in knowledge. It's not 100% clear what love is being referred to. It is the love of God, but I think it's especially the love of God that is shown in the love we have for one another. It is intelligent and purposeful delight in the triune God and in His people. Real love is quality love. It's not shallow. It's not superficial. It's what in the Greek is called agape. Verse 8, you go back, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Real love doesn't think, what can I get out of this? It asks, what can the other person get? So you might invite someone to your home because you think you will get something from them. But Christian love invites people to your home because you want to show them love. It is an overflowing love 
It is like a waterfall. It cannot be boxed or contained. It is lavish and generous and unrestrained. He says, I pray that you may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that this love would abound. Real love that puts others before ourselves is so hard and so unnatural that when Jesus tells us that we are to love, what do we do? We instinctively ask, what's the limits? Hence the question that led to Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus explained how deep that went. Paul's prayer is that they would learn how to love more and more, and that this love would reach more and more people. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. We never say, I've reached the end, I've done enough. I love this from Chrysostom, the quote I've got up there, heat makes all things expand, and the warmth of love will always expand a person's heart. You know, when we had John Lennox here, a professor of maths and philosophy of science that he is from Oxford University, do you know the comment I heard that people were more impressed than anything else? It was not his intelligence. It was not his status as a professor. It was his warmth and his love in responding to people. Cold makes things freeze. Warmth always expands things. Let me say this to you. If you're in a situation where you've got a kind of frost in your relationships or with one particular relationship or others, do you know the best thing that you can do is not moan about what's wrong with the other person and it's not point out to the other person or point out to other people about that other person the things that are wrong with that person. The best that you can do is show them the warmth, the reality of Christian love. Now, I think we, it's a very high standard, and we might question if we have this love, but we do. If we are Christians, then the seed of the love of Christ is in our heart. He's saying, he's not saying, I, I hope that you'll have love. He's saying, I, pr I pray that it will grow and it will develop. It does need to be watered. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. That's one of the great glories of Christianity. In any system of ethics other than the Christian one, you are being called to be what you are not. So you might be being challenged. No, be kind. Why? Because you're not kind. Be generous. Why? Because you're not generous. Is that not what's happening here? No. In Christ, we're being told that we already have a new nature and that new nature needs to be expressed. We are not to be satisfied with the low quality of our relationships. We are not looking for something that's not there. We need to see the love that God has placed in our hearts coming forth. And that's why if you're not a Christian, the most important thing for you is that you become one because you cannot love in the way that the Bible describes. Go read 1 Corinthians 13. You can't do it. It's impossible. I think that some people would also say that all you need is love. And they, they like the idea. They say, it's good. So you're talking about love and that's good. And Christians should be talking about love. But what Paul says is, 
That seed of love needs support. It needs the two stakes of knowledge and of insight. You don't set love and knowledge against one another. In order for our love to grow, it needs to grow in knowledge and depth of insight. Real love is not blind. It needs vision. Real love has content and meaning, mind and heart going together, the mind informing the heart. Love grows best in the soil of knowledge. You can sing all you want about loving Jesus, but if you don't know him, how can you love him? What does it say? To know him is to love him. The mind informs the heart, an informed love, an intelligent love. So I think there are people who have knowledge without love, and that leads to pride and a dry, cold aridness where even the knowledge will dry up. But what we call love without knowledge will be like a destructive fire burning with passion, but nowhere to go, and perhaps even ending up as hatred and self-destruction. Have you ever experienced that, that you thought you loved somebody, and you love them with a passion, and then within a short space of time, you feel as though you hate them. You hate them with a passion. And sometimes you get people really getting worked up about Jesus and being very emotional about Jesus, and then it doesn't work out, and they become very emotional against Jesus because we need to know him. That knowledge is precise and correct. The word that's used here is used 20 times in the New Testament, and only of the things of God. A better knowledge of God and his ways promotes greater harmony within the fellowship. It is what we need. That's why Colossians 1 verse 9 says this, same thing Paul's writing to a church. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you. To fill you with what? With the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. We need that. Paul says, Colossians 2, 2, my purposes, they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. You see, this is a circle here. And the circle goes like this, that we love Jesus we know Jesus because we know Jesus. We love Jesus because we love Jesus. We know him better. And it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. We are getting deeper and deeper and deeper. But some of us dry up spiritually because although we love Jesus and although we know Jesus, we become cold. We stop growing in love. We stop growing in knowledge. And as we decline in knowledge of Jesus, that intimate personal knowledge of him, we lose our love for his people. As we lose our love for his people, we decline in knowledge of Jesus, we grieve and we quench his spirit. And instead of that circle of growth, it becomes a cycle of decline. We grow in proportion to our knowledge. If we do not know the Lord, how can we love him? Truth is an essential ingredient in Christian experience. Ignorance stunts growth. And sadly, you know, that, I showed you that baby of um, Jonathan Ian. That's a great photograph. 
But in five years' time, if he hasn't grown, he's going to be deformed. And in 10 years' time, if he hasn't grown, and in 20 years' time, there are too many of us as Christians who just do not see the Christian life as being one of continual growth. We're struggling to hold on to what we once had and perhaps go back to it. But it's not enough. Paul uses this word for knowledge, which means added knowledge. It means super knowledge. It means like a PhD in God. It's developed knowledge of the truth that has practical consequences. And you see, he says, I pray that you would have that knowledge and depth of insight. It's not just what does the Bible teach. It's not just being able to repeat the Bible. But how does it apply to daily life? How do you connect it? It's all very well coming to church on a Sunday. But how do you connect it on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday? How do you do that? Some people say you just need the Ten Commandments. No, you need to know how they apply. You need to be able to take the Word and to apply it to you today. That's what Paul describes here as insight, depth of insight. <coughs> and I'll tell you what depth of insight is. The word is the Greek word from which we get the term aesthetics. Aesthetics is appreciation of what is beautiful. It is perception by sense and intellect. And what Paul is saying here is that he prays that we would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that we would perceive, that we would understand, that we would grasp. Maybe one way to explain this is you can tell a person who loves books by the way they handle them. You know, I, I love books. I love my books. And I belong to something called the Folio Society. And I've got my folio books. And you ever go near them with a felt pen? You go within, you, you go within a meter of them with a felt pen. And you, you're going to struggle to be long for this world. It, it's, I, I mean, I do. I love my books. You see the way that they're handled. Let me tell you this. You can tell a person who loves people by the way they handle people. You say... Oh, I love people, I'm a Christian. So, and then you're crabby and mean and, and moany and cold. And, no, you don't. You don't love people. You're full of waffle. You don't love people. How you handle people shows whether you love them. <coughs> now, as we grow in this depth of insight and this knowledge, it leads us to appreciate what God has given, His Word, His people, His creation. It enables us to filter out what is harmful and polluting. It is perceptive love. And it brings a greater unity. You know what it's like in a family? Who do you love the most? Your family. Who do you fall out with the most? Probably your family. Not everyone. I know that some of you live in wonderful families that you never have a fight, but the rest of us, we struggle sometimes with that. Why, how can a family even stay together? Because there is a love and there is a knowledge and because you mature as you grow as a family and as you grow in a relationship and you learn how to live with one another and to support and help one another and you learn to appreciate. You know, it's horrible, isn't it? If you've got brothers and sisters or siblings, you've got <coughs> parents or children and to be honest, you don't really truly appreciate them. Um, 
last night when we had the celebration for uh, Annabelle's birthday. It was fantastic. Uh, and, but most of you missed the best part of it, which was afterwards because uh, uh, Andrew made a wee speech back in our house. I'm not going to say what he said, and I don't want to embarrass him or his mother, but it was one of the most moving and wonderful things uh, that I've heard. And I just thought, well, isn't it great that you can be in a family and you can, you can rub each other up the wrong way in so many ways, but what really helps things is when you can see the beauty and the goodness that's there in other people. In the church, where there's a tendency to disunity and fault-finding, you, you just, it rips us apart. It's essential to grow in knowledge and insight of what God has done. Now, that doesn't mean you never say anything critical. I actually love it when you can be mature enough in a church to have someone come and say, look, I'm really un- struggling with this, and I see how this is going, and, but they're a person who's, who's warm and who's saying it. They're speaking the truth in love. They're not coming and having a moan or having a go. So the important thing about all of that is just simply that quality love needs knowledge and insight. Verse 10, make this a wee bit um, shorter. It leads to a pure life. Knowledge and insight lead to the best, a pure life, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless till the day of Christ. The seed of love grows through the holders of knowledge and insight. What this produces is it produces blossoms, if you like, of discernment and holiness, the purity of the inner person, the blamelessness of the outer life. To recognize as genuine the best after examination, to approve and to deem worthy. The word that Paul uses here for best, recognizing what is best, is of somebody checking fake coins or fake notes. If you grow in love, in knowledge and depth of insight, you are able to judge what is best, what is genuine, what is for real. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord. (coughs) There is a better life for you. How do you recognize that? You You recognize it by finding out what pleases the Lord. I think there is a great danger here. I think that there is a danger that we are content with too little, that we do not accept that there is a better life, that we become like children of our age, just reflecting its values and attitudes. We're content with spiritual knowledge if it doesn't make too many demands on our spiritual life, if it tickles our ears but does not change our lives or challenge our lifestyles. We choose our churches and our methods of worship and our ways of doing things by how they fit in with what we are already. But God says, I want to change you. You're not there. And this is going to be uncomfortable. Because I'm like the surgeon who comes with his knife. I need to cut some things away. I need to remodel and reshape. What makes us distinctive if we are Christians is that we base our lives on knowledge, insight, and the discernment that comes from the Word of God. We don't seek to take the Word of God and make it fit us. We take ourselves and we submit ourselves to Christ speaking through His Word. Another way of using this is to to talk about what is best and pure and blameless. 
carries this idea of being able to discern what really matters. What is really vital? What really counts in a fellowship? St. Augustine said, the only thing that really unites men is a common desire for the same ends. What's important to you? What's important to me? I can tell you what's important to me sometimes. Sometimes I get really concerned if there's not as many people in church as there were the previous Sunday. Sometimes I get concerned if people are upset at me in certain things because I'm inherently selfish and so much of it is about me. Sometimes I'm concerned about things that are my own personal comfort or what I would like to be. But that's not what really counts. You'll notice that a lot of arguments in churches and a lot of discussions within denominations, although they're couched in the highest spiritual language, tend to be about things that are relatively unimportant, and the stuff that's important gets brushed to one side. Paul says, I want you to grow in knowledge because I want you to grow in insight. I want you to have your love to be this so that you can discern what is best. Love and discernment go together. To love is to have the motivation to help. Discernment enables us to see what the real need is. Love means we have compassion and and discernment sees that we see the situation clearly and realistically. So someone comes to you and they're really in a rotten mood and they say something to you and you love them and you want to respond, but discernment, you realize, wait a minute, what they're upset about is not really what they're saying. May your love increase and abound in right knowledge and perceptive power that you may apply the right tests and reach the right decisions in things which present moral difficulties. So that insight, where does that come from? It comes from prayer. And it leads to purity. Look what he says. You may be able to discern what is best and may be pure, whiter than white, sincere, unsullied. You are found pure when examined by the sun's rays, that you are on the inside what you claim to be on the outside. I am, you can find that people can monitor your phone calls. Uh, I I suspect that WikiLeaks are probably not too uh, concerned about our phone calls and things like that. But supposing there was a a WikiLeaks for the church and uh, you found that things that you had said, what you thought you'd said in private, what you thought you'd said to just one friend or what you even said yourself, what, what if you broadcast it? What if you wrote something down? In, uh, I like watching the West Wing, and one of the speechwriters in the West Wing, they were, didn't like the vice president, so they wrote this speech about how the vice president was really mega boring and so on, and then they pressed, unfortunately, the send button, and it went to everyone. Have you ever written something that really was what you felt, then you press the send button by accident, and you can't unsend it? Well, we have to be careful. We should be people who would not be ashamed of what we do or say in private or even what we think in the corners of our heart because love makes you sincere and transparent. What we said this morning about falsehood and and our lives. Is there anything worse than a person who's gurney and moany and continually complaining about people? Yes. The person who's always shiny and smiley and continually praising people and yet really can't stand people. That's hypocrisy. I liked, um, I picked this up from somewhere, I don't know where it's from, but it's not 
I did quite like this. Some people are like those sweets that are soft on the outside and hard on the inside. You melt away the sentimental outside, and inside you find a hard, self-centered individual. So outwardly, they're all gooey and lovey and, and, you know, Lord bless you and everything. And inside, I can't stand that person. Inside, they're hard. Paul says, no, no, this has got to go deep. Blameless, you must have relational integrity, not causing others to stumble. Let's stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Romans 14, 13. And we do it until the day of Christ. That's what he says here. <coughs> the day that 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So a knowledge and insight lead to a pure life. A pure life is filled with the fruit of righteousness. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of the, the seed of love has now grown. It's blossomed, aided by knowledge and insight. It's blossomed into discernment, purity, and blamelessness. Now, and then only now, does it yield full, full fruit. You do not go from becoming a Christian to having instant full fruit. It, it grows and develops a fruit that will stand test on the day of judgment. Productive lives lead to more productive lives. God is not like a boss demanding we produce more fruit. He is the one who is telling us that he's not interested so much in the business of our lives, but who we are and the fruit that we produce. The fruit of the Spirit, I've listed there from Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's love. And all you have to do is do what sometimes they tell you to do with these kinds of Bible verses, is just put your name in there. And to say, and even for me saying this, it's just cringe, embarrassing. David is love, joy, peace. All right, I stop. You do exactly the same. That's what we are to have. We have to have this harvest. I think also that fruit of the Spirit, praise is also fruit. Praise where we, we present to God as a thank offering. That's what we're, we're doing when we sing praise, but it's also uh, what we're doing when we pray and when we worship in that way. Paul prays that we would be filled, overflowing with this fruit of righteousness. A life that is better is a life that is full. In other words, we are not running on empty. How can we keep going as Christians? It's really difficult if the tank is empty. You need to be filled. And it comes from God. Lawrence of Arabia um, took some Arab friends to Paris. And they were fascinated, not by the Arc de Triomphe, not by the Eiffel Tower, but rather by the sinks in their hotels. He records this. They wanted to take them home. Why? Because their country was very dry. And they just, here was a country where you just turned on the tap and the water came. They thought that was wonderful. And Lawrence had to explain about the Alps and the rain and where the water came from. We should be like those sinks where there's spiritual blessing and spiritual fruit and spiritual life flowing from us. That's what we're promised in terms of the Holy Spirit. 
But where does the water come from to overcome our spiritual dryness? It's from Christ. Without Christ, there's no real spiritual fruit. And just the last thing in this is then that, <coughs> that love which is embedded in us by our faith in Christ, aided by knowledge and insight, blossoms into discernment, purity, and blamelessness, flourishes into the full fruit of the Spirit and praise, and an overflowing life bringing glory to God. That's what it results in, to the glory and praise of God. This is what we call sanctification. For those of you who are into theology, <coughs> there are two words really important to know. One is justification, and the other is sanctification. And it's very important, if you ever go to a home, a minister's home or something like that, or a communion's on the island of Lewis, and you get asked about sanctification and justification, just to prove that you're well taught, you will say, justification is instant and sanctification is progressive. And I'd be so impressed. What that means is justification, being made right with God, is something that God does to us through Jesus Christ as we believe in Jesus Christ, as His Spirit works in our lives. We are justified. But sanctification is an ongoing process. That sanctification is being made holy, becoming more like Jesus, and that is ongoing. And that takes a long time. It will take the whole of your life. You are filled with this fruit that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It brings glory and praise to God. What brings Shame and disgrace to God is when we as His people live lives which are not worthy of Him. So what is, let me finish this by just asking, what is our motivation? In the first 11 verses of Philippians, there are seven direct references to Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, to the Philippians, he actually is saying, it's not really about you, it is about Jesus and what Jesus does through you. Our obedience, our discipline, our hard work are not insignificant or optional. They are what God uses. But it is God that causes the, grow, the, the growth. Why? Because the Son is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Father in us. He saves us to bring glory to His name. We fail, we neglect, we're inadequate, but God is at work. And God is at work to bring glory to His name. What is glory? To the glory and praise of God. Glory is the brightness and splendor of God. It's the sum total of all the divine perfections, as uh, Andrew's favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, would say. Every holy character is a testimony to the divine character and efficiency of the work of redemption. See, when people look at you and they say, my, isn't she a wonderful person? They haven't got it. That's not, or maybe you haven't got it. When people look at you and go, isn't she a wonderful person? I want to know who it is that makes her a wonderful person. Because that's not natural. And they've really got it if they look at you and they say, isn't God a wonderful God? Isn't Jesus a wonderful Savior? You glorify God when you live as he intended you to, as his saved and redeem people. Man's chief end is to glorify God and 
to enjoy Him forever. We're created to be for His praise and His glory. Ephesians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And again, here's the reason. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in Christ Jesus. You start off, we started off this by asking, what could give us a better life? We finish just simply by answering that the question is, what causes us to bring glory and praise to Jesus Christ? That is our reason for existence, our raison d'etre. That is our whole purpose. And you, you, you please have to think about that. It's not that God exists for you or Jesus exists for you or the church exists for you so that you would have a better life. It's that you exist for Jesus Christ. And as you grasp that and as you understand that, you will then have the best life that it is, it is possible to have. I will say this one thing because it, I, I thought it was so right and please forgive me for, for being personal in this. But I thought the most beautiful thing that Andrew said last night in thanking his mother for being his mother and what a good mother she was, was not that she's a fantastic cook, which she is. It's not all the qualities that you would look for, but it's that she's a Christian who loves God enough to bring the gospel, seek to bring the gospel to her children to friends, to family, and to others. Do you know, a non-Christian, if you're, people outside, they're just going to, if I, you try and explain that to somebody, they're just going to go, what kind of religious fruitcake are you? I don't want to belong. That's like a cult. That's just so weird. It's just so, I, I can't explain that to somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is. But to somebody who knows who Jesus is, that is just the most incredible thing. We are filled with love, not because we inherently within ourselves are wonderful people, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And as that multiplies and grows and develops, it brings glory and praise to God. I'm fed up of non-Christians saying, oh, you see that church here and this and that religious hypocrite and so on. I think it's wonderful as I do hear, as I also hear people saying the opposite. Wow, there must be something in this because look at the way that he is. Look at the way that she is. So when you're, you go home tonight, you read over this prayer, make this prayer your own, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Make it your absolute effort to find out more and more of the excellencies, the beauty, the wonder, the glory of Jesus Christ. Because as you do that, you'll discern what is best. You will be pure and blameless. You will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, and that will bring glory and praise to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you that you have called us to this just incredible life, that even as we are filled, that 
there is more to come. That as, as we hunger and thirst for you, you satisfy our hunger, you quench our thirst, and you increase our capacity for joy, for love, for peace. We pray that the fruit of your Holy Spirit would be evident in all your people here. We pray that we would grow in knowledge and in depth of insight. We pray, O oh Lord, that if any of us don't know you, that we would commit our lives to you, that we would long for this, that we would want this Spirit-filled, glorious life. And Lord, for those of us who are weary and tired and those of us who've become almost out of love with one another and with you, that we would be returned, that we would come back, that we would grow in depth and knowledge and understanding of the love of Jesus, and we would know this love that surpasses knowledge. For we ask it in your name. Amen.